These are the stories of The 116, a podcast from the heart of the First United Methodist Church in downtown Peoria, Illinois. This is where belief becomes action and action brings hope. Here's your host, Greg Fish. Well, we are actually up to episode four of Stories from the 116. Hello and welcome everybody coming to you from uh, the catacombs of the uh, First United Methodist Church in downtown Peoria. And uh, we want to invite you to like and share these podcasts on uh, Facebook, social media, Twitter, wherever you happen to share them. Uh, You can also find all the show notes on our website at www.com fumcpeoria.org. Please be sure and check that out. We, we are back once again with Pastor Tim Osmond and Dan Phillips as we continue our final episode of uh, exploring this, this great adventure that you guys went on going to Liberia and discovering a, a different culture and having your lives changed in ways that perhaps you couldn't even have anticipated before you left. Now, Let's start with the motorcycle story. <laughs> what, what happened there? Well, we at one of our first um, stops after we, when we were in Monrovia, uh, we stopped at the, um, was it the, uh, what was that? Harriet Tubman um, yes, school, school. school mm-hmm. grounds, mm-hmm. Okay. school station, uh-huh. another Methodist school station where we have a relationship with the principal and some other folks. And on the grounds, uh, we noticed a, a, a guy driving a motorcycle or riding a motorcycle around. Now, motorcycles or motorbikes, more precisely, in Liberia are kind of like our taxis. Uh, they're used for basic mm. transportation, but in Liberia, you see these motorbikes everywhere by the hundreds. Okay. And in Liberia, um, there's not really road rage because it would be uh, it'd be it'd be senseless because everybody just cuts in front of other people. You expect it, you acknowledge it by beeping that you're going to be cutting somebody off, or you're going to be um, <laughs> turning in front of them or stopping quickly. Um, so we see this motorbike, and Tim is, has been a, a motorcycle rider, I'm sure, since he was a little kid, and, and I've done a little bit of it myself. And so when we saw this guy riding around, we both thought, wow, this would be fun. And next thing you know, we see Amy on the back of a motorbike getting to ride it. So I think we both felt a little, I don't know. A little know, cheated, maybe. Yeah, a little cheated, yeah. A short change, yeah. And we thought we would get a chance, but uh, uh, we didn't. So um, we did, um, at, at the uh, trip to Corson, we did notice that one of the church members or, or possibly a teacher did have a motorbike. And after the lunch, he rode it up to the house. And next thing I know, I turn around, Tim's on the motorbike. <laughs> and he's, uh, you know, I mean, once you, it's like riding a bike. You get back on it, you pretty uh-huh. much know what you're doing. Yeah, they're all 100cc motorcycles. So they're not yeah. a big bike. They're pretty, sure. pretty easy sure. to manage. And the funny thing was Julie had said to both of us, because we both said we wanted to ride a bike, and Julie said, no, I told your spouses that I was going to bring you home safely, so you're not getting on. (laughs) She was much like my mother. Yeah, yeah, very (laughs) much. And appreciated that very much, but but, uh, no, you you know, and then the surprise from the Liberians who were all standing around the house as we're there, um, because they said, you're not going to ride that, are you? And and actually, the guy who owned the motorcycle says, I'll give you a ride on the back. And I said, no, 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 I'll ride in on the front and you ride on the back. And all these librarians started laughing because this white guy uh-huh. who <laughs> they had only seen a handful of maybe in their life is going to get on this motorcycle and ride. You, What does he know about riding a motorcycle? 
of course, I like Dan said, I've been riding since I was 12 years old. I own a first one was an XL70 and <laughs> owned a CB100 and then a, a Kawasaki 500. And so I got on this thing and 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 immediately dropped, you know, kicked it and and got it started and mm-hmm. and I and asked, is it one down, three up? He said, no, 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 it's all up, which is the gear. Okay. So and on American bikes, you it's usually one down with mm-hmm. your left foot and that puts you in first gear and then. The rest of the gears are all up and neutrals in between first and second and says no 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 it's all up i said oh great so i took off and i just i went about a block and or so and and suddenly realized there of course you don't usually use the front brake anyways uh unless you want to do a flip uh and not a good one and uh-huh. and, and the back brake was almost non-existent as well oh. i thought oh, great uh, so I slowed down a little bit and then got turned around. As I'm coming back, there's about a half a dozen little kids yeah. sta- standing there where I'm going to be driving up, and I'm not. I'm still going to be about ten feet away from them. And and Dan says, "Look out! Here he comes!" And, <laughs> and those kids scattered. They scattered. Oh, One my. little kid fell flat on his face. <laughs> I, I was laughing, sort of, uh, and I felt so bad. But uh, they immediately came back, and Tim handled it great. And all of the adults outside of the uh, principal's house were amazed to see this guy, this pastor, um, on this motorcycle. I, th- so, I think they all clapped. If I remember, they, they yes, kind of cheered, did. like, "All right, it didn't." kill himself <laughs> yes they uh, did yeah so that was that was a lot of fun and my chance to to do that came uh oh i don't know days later when uh, we were leaving uh gone to to we were on our next to last day out of there and um an old friend of julie's showed up uh bobo bobo, bobo. Mm-hmm. bobo. yes and he had a uh, he had a hundred cc yamaha and I, I was just eyeing it, and I don't know who said it, but they said, you can go ahead and take it for a spin. I absolutely loved it. Really? I absolutely yeah. loved it. I don't know. It was just a, a certain amount of freedom. Uh, and, again, dirt roads, um, you know, just dust everywhere. And the neat thing about the motorcycles in Liberia, like I said, they're kind of like the taxi. So you'll see people go down the, the road with five people on a motorbike. Holy and cow. and that is because wow. those are all paying fares that uh-huh. have uh, hailed a, a person driving by and said, I need to go down to the next village or I need to go down to the market. And you get on and it doesn't matter if there's well one, two, three, four, uh, they make room. You'll also see a motorbike go by that'll have big bags of charcoal. Um, I think we even saw one that was carrying mattresses. Um, yes. Uh, wow. And wow. and with the one day that we got rain, we noticed that they and again because the motorbikes usually have longer seats because uh, as they called it running traffic. If you're running traffic, that means you're picking up fares. Um, they had an umbrella fashion that would look like it was factory that went above the driver but extended back. It was like an umbrella with a tail, mm-hmm. and it went to the back of the motorcycle, so the umbrella would cover. Uh, in a elongated fashion, two, three, four people um, uh, in the rain. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was Can't it was imagine. fun. But the motorbikes oh. are an essential part of transportation there. Um, they keep them covered in plastic because the dirt is just everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, the motorbikes that was a fun time. So so you you're making me wonder now what exactly did they think of you, uh, whiteies there among them, uh, these guys from America. Did you ever find out what their impression of, of what you were like was, or did they just not understand at all what you were like? 
I, that's a good question. I um, I think we're just a, more of a novelty to mm -hmm. some of them. Now, some yeah. of the kids, I know there was one kid that put his head down on the desk and wouldn't look. He was about six years old, maybe. Right. Really? Uh, and didn't didn't want to look at us because, and the teacher said that, that white people sort of freak him out a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we did have a gal um, that she was selling what was kind of like a, uh, I don't know what it, it, it looked like, like a kiddie pool yes. full of flesh. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so we, Tim and I were in this market and it was outside of Ganta and uh, Julie and Amy and uh, Helen were buying a Lapa cloth to have fashioned into a, a dress. And Tim and I were just walking around. And I think we did hear people say something about white, white guys or white something. people, but, mm -hmm. but uh, anyway, go ahead. Uh, oh, yeah. well, she, yeah, she was saying they were like a five by five squares and about three inches thick. So it, you know, clearly it was skin with some of the fat on it. Probably what we found out later was it was actually from cattle. And I think they use it to kind of boil it down to, to make oil to cook in. Okay. And, uh, but this one, like she wouldn't look at us and she just, and, and broken English, Liberian English, you know, move on, just move on. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so we said, okay. Yeah. And we just kept me one. I'm per she was probably pretty sure we weren't going to buy anything anyways. Yeah. We're just looky lose, you uh -huh. know, and taking photos. <laughs> and one gal did ask, why are you taking a photo of us? And I said, because this is such a beautiful country. And I said, you're such beautiful people. We just would like to take this home with us. And then she got a smile on her face when I said that. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, it was, we were very much in their territory at that point. Now, uh, outside of that, we never really had, I mean, that was the most severe, you know, move along that we ever had, or really, I felt not really in danger then no. even, but. No, uh, it, it, it is a different feeling. Uh, the places that we were, those are not places that you would see other Westerners. You would, okay. you would not see, it's not a vacation right. part of the country. Right. There are just a few places that if you. Look online, you Google travel to Liberia. Once you get past the ones that say don't go there, there are some that, you know, say visit the ecotourism things. And, and you know, there are some Westerner-related um, hotels and places that are just fine, but we weren't there. Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, we were back in the bush, and we were places where um, it was common everyday Liberians. And that meant there weren't a lot of people um that look like us. Sure. Uh, but, but with that thought in mind, I never felt that, um, aside from the moment that Tim mentioned that, that we were in any danger. The, the Liberian people are very gracious. They're very outgoing. Um, they speak a Liberian English, which, um, is really a combination of the half a dozen tribal languages, uh, Pele and Mana or Mana and lots of different ones uh -huh. with some English rolled in. And so you would hear a, a sentence that sounded like, I kind of understand that, but you, you really didn't really get it. I remember Tim uh, saying something to somebody, and um, they just looked at him. And the district superintendent, Aaron Yankee, uh, who is from Liberia, uh, he repeated what Tim said, and it sounded pretty much to me like what Tim said. And then as soon as Aaron said it, the people go, oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, he, he said that. He just said that. He took my southern draw out he of did. it, though. That's what it was. And he put did. the Liberian yeah. twist on it. Yeah. And, he uh, did. But the, the people were very uh, genuinely honest and friendly. And I think one thing about Liberia, from what I've read, is that is a country that, uh, since its inception in the mid-1800s, has counted on the positive influences from the outside world. 
they've counted on uh, countries, uh, governments, uh, churches, um, NGOs to come in and help. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are a country that has suffered a lot of uh, problems uh, from uh, medical situations to civil wars. And without the help of others, um, they just, they they wouldn't be able to survive. And, And through all of that, they're um, spiritual connection uh, to God is strong. I mean, even to the point where, you know, you see uh, Jesus um, on commercial structures everywhere. Yeah. Um, you'll see it on vehicles. You'll see it everywhere. Written um, on bumpers. And, yeah. 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 Really? And, yeah. They just, they, they proclaim their faith. Uh, sometimes it's used to sell things, but uh, it's a big part of their life. And they, wow. they, uh, they speak it, they profess it. It's nothing they, they try to hide by any means. Now you mentioned the language and I, and we've established before that it's, that it's a kind of a, a kind of sort of version of English. Pastor, you you actually preached while you were there. Did you have a translator? Did you have to speak slowly? How did that work for you communicating? It yeah. Um, going into that, I, I I prayed very hard, and I asked our team to pray too. I said, "Look, do I pray the Acts two thing happens again? That one mm. God gives me, yeah, you know, the gift of tongues to speak in a native language here, in sure, a way in which they can understand me." But I said, also pray for what happened in Acts 2, which was also the gift of hearing, because each right, heard right. in their own native language in a way they could understand. So I asked our, our group to, to be in prayer about that. And I and that morning, um, it was very fluid going into it. I had said to the, to the team, I said, we're, we're going to potentially wash uh, hands today uh, and, as opposed to washing feet because they're not prepared for that, and we're, we're not really either, so we're going to use some hand sanitizer and potentially wash hands. We'll see how many people show up, because we had no idea the numbers that were coming. And so when it was all said and done, I actually had Aaron Yankee, who's the district superintendent, also is the pastor of that church, who graciously let me have his pulpit that day. And so I invited him to come up as a representative of the church, and I washed his hands. Mm. And there's this phrase in Liberia that they use called, I hold your foot. And holding your foot means I've gotten down on the ground, and metaphorically, I've taken your foot in my hand. I can't get any lower, and I've held your foot. And in holding your foot, I'm asking you to forgive me and to give me grace. Yes. So back, uh, I actually read a story um, about Oh, House on Sugar Beach, I think is the name of the book. And in there, the author talks about this phrase that's used. And I immediately went to the upper room story of Jesus getting in the dirt and saying to Peter, who, you know, when you read this story, it's like, why is Peter so upset that Jesus is going to wash his foot? But when you think of it in a Liberian term, Jesus was saying, I get as, as humble as I can, as low as I can, and Peter, I hold your foot. And, and in a sense, Peter, I'm asking you to forgive me. Now, why would God do that? Mm-hmm. And yet in the Philippians passage, it says that he lowered himself. He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, yes. but lowered himself and became human and be, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he couldn't get any lower. He got his, and then our, our, our Apostles' Creed talks about he descended even into hell. He, he went all the way that he could with humanity that he might redeem us. And so that's why I, I, I use that illustration. And so when I was washing 
Aaron's hands, I said, Aaron, I take your foot. I hold your foot, not take it. Take your foot in library would mean I cut it off, but oh. I hold, yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> no, no, not good. So I hold your foot, mm-hmm. uh, and I wash your hands in the name of Jesus Christ. May you do the same for your people, is what I said. So, And that seemed, because I was using a phrase they were used to, they said it translated very well into their language and into their understanding. And so it turned out it was just a beautiful service. I... I I can only tell you from my what I felt in my heart and spirit and what the team felt. Um, I'm just hopeful that all of that communicated well with them. Now in Liberia, it's very they've got a liturgy, even though it's not written down. So if you say, as we you know sometimes do here, you know God is good, you know then response all all the, all the time, time and all the time God is good. They do that there, but they have another set of phrases, and each one has a different response. So depending on what I said, uh-huh. and all of God's people said, and they had amen, and glory be to God, and glory hallelujah, and they would all respond. Uh-huh. They were just, and they knew what to respond. So throughout the service, I kind of sprinkled some of that in. I thought, even if they don't catch the whole thing, at least there's pieces they will understand. It's part of their, sure. part of their liturgy and experience. So it, it was a great experience, and I just very thankful to have had the opportunity. So were they pretty interactive with you then during the course of, of the service? They were. They, yeah, they were very in, interactive. And in fact, the organist, as often happens in African-American churches here, so as I'm preaching, when I'd hit a high note and, and say a certain phrase, the organist would, you know, play, yeah, you yeah. know, uh-huh. uh, play on the organ a, f- a few notes and, and yeah. you know, and uh, so it was really a unique experience. So it was, and and Pastor did a great job. Now the service uh, is a little bit different than the service that we're used to. Mm-hmm. Um, it started at ten thirty, which was great. Uh, we didn't have to get up early. Most of our days had been, you know, you're up and out by eight o'clock. But um, it started at ten thirty, uh, and it was just a short walk um, across the yard to to get to the church. Um, but the church, they said, just get comfortable. And so we were. Um, um, he, of course, was at, up at the pulpit, but Tim and or, uh, Julie and Amy and I were in the front row as we were guests. And behind us um, in this beautiful church um, were probably 100-plus people mm-hmm. dressed just spectacularly and very, as Tim said, enthusiastic and, and anxious to be in church that then would last on that day until about 1 o'clock. And um, from the time that they started at 10.30, I was kind of watching the the clock. Um, not that I do that, you know, but um, <laughs> just to see where at Tim would start. And it was probably close to an hour and a half in before he started um, his message. And I think you went for 10, 15 minutes, something like that. Uh, maybe? I, I probably, yeah, I probably went somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes 15, was the 20, length of the okay. sermon. I fell um, asleep for a little yeah. bit. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. And I do watch the clock, by the way. I, mm-hmm. uh, two of the churches I served previously, they were on the radio. So if you didn't watch the clock, if I didn't end the message in time for them to get their you know, final tag at the end of it, they would just cut my sermon off. I mean, it's just how it was. Sure. So I've been in the habit of many years now watching the clock. So I was watching the clock. But that day I didn't. But the interesting thing is they also do, throughout their service, they would have a business meeting right in the middle of their service because that's when the people are there. They've, okay. Some of them have walked an hour mm. to get to church. Oh, yeah. And so they need to conduct business while they're there. And so they'd kind of not really pause. It was just a part of their yeah. worship service. And then uh, they would take four offerings. They took four offerings that morning, and they would put, these baskets, these bushel baskets, like a clothing basket up front, 
and they would sing and dance as they brought up their offering. It was a beautiful thing to watch. It was. Everybody danced their offering up, and they told us, don't put all your money in the first offering because you'll have multiple <laughs> well, opportunities. Yes. And uh, Liberia is an old paper money uh, culture. Uh -huh. um, one of our dollars equals 180 of their dollars or 90 of their dollars. Wow. And so people would crumple up their money and put it in this laundry basket, brightly colored laundry basket. Okay. And, and that was their offering. So it sounds like you came back with a lot of great ideas for our services here then, maybe hey, some new things to try. If they do four, we, surely we could do eight. Yeah, I would think so. But the interesting thing, they do four, four offerings, but each offering is for something different. So rather okay. than doing one offering and collecting it, and then there being checks there where, you know, it's designated for the building fund or the general fund, they have to, because it's all paper money, they do it so that this offering is for missions. This offering is for our general fund. And that way, whoever's doing accounting then can kind of keep it separate. And that's how they do their accounting. We just do yeah. it in one big offering. But but I don't know. We may have to try at least two offerings. Yeah, I, think. I, well, think, I think the dance part, too. <laughs> I think that would but, be good. And I, I kind of like Dr. John Orff giving you a little bit of background help there, too, while I you're bet. preaching. That's, that oh, could be, be fun. Awesome. You know, that yeah. was great. Every, every time, like, like Tim said, something, you know, dramatic would be said he would get a if it's like there was a little soundtrack to the yeah, to yeah, the yeah. Uh, sermon which i thought was pretty cool uh, yeah i just i love the story you guys came back with about the time when uh, they were looking to you for help in leadership can you kind of set that up and tell me exactly what happened at that moment because what a great story yeah we had a the district uh in ganta had a had a dinner for us and it was actually held at our place where we were staying uh, in the missions house there, guest house. And so Aaron Yankee was there, the district superintendent, the dean of students at the uh, School of Nursing, the principal from the high school uh, and grade school was there. Um, the hospital administrator was there. There were several. And and we're all sitting at the table and then sitting at th this couch kind of behind the table um, uh, was a fellow by the name of Jonathan. Was it Jonathan? Yeah, Jonathan Cooper. Yeah, and Jonathan is uh, works there at the mission station, and and he's kind of the, the, the really the gopher for the the main gal who's there. He takes care of all kinds of things. He has a degree in marketing, twenty four years of age, and as he's sitting there, he says, "I've got a question." He says, "Here we've got all these leaders who've been fairly successful in their life," and he says, "I'm sitting here," and he was sitting next to another young man, and he said, "He said here we're just starting out," and he said, "I'd like to ask, could you share with us?" some of your wisdom, what is the, the, the greatest joy that you've had in leadership and what has been the greatest struggle you've had? Wow. And yeah. just, yeah, I thought, what a wonderful question to ask. And the, Goodness. the one fellow who's the administrator for the hospital had just finished his master's degree in leadership. And uh, so I, I said, why don't you speak? Because I said, you've got some things that you've just studied and written on. But we all took an opportunity to go around and talk about what is – what does leadership really look like? Um, and so what's the greatest joy we had and what's the, the hardest challenge that we've faced? And so anyways, it was just a joy to share with him. Afterwards, I got my photo with him. I got a selfie with him. I said, Jonathan, I want to get a picture so that I could say I knew you before you became president of Liberia. Because I said, <laughs> you're going places, boy. You're going yeah. places. And he liked that. Oh, he loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I did share my email with him, and he since, uh, sent us an email because he said, I'd like to connect with you, and I'd like for you to tell me what books you've read on leadership that might be of benefit to me. So I have sent him a short list of 
of books. And that's why I was saying in an earlier podcast, I need to figure out how to connect with him and get, get him some books. I, no, no way to ship it to him because there's no postal mm-hmm. service there. But I, I want to wrap this up with, with a story from each of you about the way that this trip has changed your life. And Dan, I want to start with you because you've had an interesting life trajectory. I mean, you've been on television, on radio, uh, business owner, and now you have this really powerful work that you do at First United Methodist Church uh, with our community. But then this, then you go to Liberia. How are you different today than you were when you left? And why is that? Well, you know, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, what I saw in Liberia and what I experienced in Liberia and part of what I left in Liberia was how much God is working in all of us um, everywhere we go and that the, the needs of the people are no different here than they are there. Uh, when we met with um, the kids and the faculty at the new school that we're at, um, they welcomed us with their heart, um, and and it wasn't that much different from when we're down at Lincoln School and we go into our class to celebrate birthdays, and the kids truly speak with joy and love in welcoming us into their class. Um, we are giving them and we are getting from them uh, something that we each need, and that is a love and commitment for each other. Um, so, I got a I got a, um, I got a, a um, uh, I don't know if it's a renewed sense of, of my place in the world, but um, I just really got an understanding um, how big our God is and how he takes care of us even when I don't understand it. Um, wow. we, were just, we were just so blessed. And to see all those people that truly uh, were thankful for what little we were doing for them sure. and with them, um, you would have thought we were well, changing their lives, and maybe we are. Yeah. Um, but it's just, um, I, I don't know. I don't have a real good answer for that. Um, it's developing all the time because I'm reflecting on it. It was, and Julie uh, had mentioned, you know, the veteran of the trips to Liberia. Uh, it'll take uh, weeks to really uh, understand everything. Uh, the one thing that we did that, that I, I dreaded every night, and I was so thankful that we did after we did it, was we decompressed and okay. we talked about our days. And yeah. that really gave me a, a bigger picture of why we were there, what we were doing, and what we were all experiencing. So I think a lot of what I experienced is yet to be seen, how it, how it reflects. But I am so thankful for everything that uh, I'm able to do here and share with the people here and around me. Um, so that's my long answer with very little meaning, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> oh, you're, you're good. <laughs> that's great. Good yeah. luck. Good yeah. luck with it, well, Tim. I, yeah, two, two quick things. One, I would want to say how much I appreciated the team that, that went with us, you know, Dan, Julie, and Amy, um, and just how impressed I was with them and their level of spiritual maturity and just how they took care of things. Um, each one of them shined in their own moment. And I, really, I just I couldn't have asked for a better team to have gone with. Well, one of the things, though, that I did kind of wrestle with and just, just, I, it just, I'm still processing. So we went to Corson. We met with the, where we've built the school, met with the principal there, Majestu, and realized that he really is a guy who's got great vision, but he just doesn't know how to get the vision accomplished. Okay. The steps between point A and B, there aren't, it's just, we go from, you know, from here to 100 miles an hour. And he needed help to figure out how to, what's the next step. 
And we had been told that by uh, Aaron Yankee, because on Monday we were supposed to went back to Corson and we weren't going to go. So he had another school for us to go in Saquapelli, I think Sac- it was. Saquakia? Saquakia. Yeah. And you know, I didn't want to go. Dan didn't no. want to go. No. We were right We were right in the back of this this truck, uh, uh, Land Rover, Land, yeah. with about an inch, inch and a half worth of foam on on a metal structure. And, uh-huh. and I was when I would stop – the world would keep moving. So I was a little oh motion sickness, yes. uh, sick there. And I didn't want to go. Julie said, we're going. And I, I just almost put my foot down and held my <laughs> breath and said, I'm not going. But, but we went. And when we got there, we met a fellow by the name of Maxwell, who was the principal there. And, and as he was talking, I realized this is the mentor that, or the kind of mentor that Magistus needed. I, w- I went for a little while behind the, the building there, the school building, and there was about seven rows of pineapples. It takes 12 to 18 months for a pineapple to mature. Wow. And not only did he have one row where all the pineapples were going to mature at the same time, he had set them out so there were varying sizes and, you know, as you went down the row. And so he was going to have pineapples all year long. And I thought, this is the guy who needs to connect with majesty so he understands how to plant pineapples metaphorically yes, uh, yes so that he's not just planting a pineapple and he eats it and he's done and and i just i w- had to walk away for a little while uh, from the conversation julie kind of looked at me like what are you doing and it, it was just the holy spirit and the presence of god was so on me in that moment and i for a moment i had to say lord i am sorry because i didn't want to come but you needed me to see this and it just, it, it, you know, even as a pastor, I'm still growing in the faith and coming to understand what God's doing, still learning. Mm-hmm. And it just reminded me and taught me that I need to be patient in the presence of God when the Lord asks something of me, that there's a reason why, even if it makes me uncomfortable, even if I don't want to, and I just need to lean into that. So that's, sure. what, that's part of what I'm bringing back. Sure. The other thing is I'm bringing back is really just a heart for these people. They are in my soul now. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know what that's going to look like in the future, but what I know right now is I cannot get them out of my heart and mind. And God has put such a burden on my life to do something for them and with them. And so that's, that's, and that's an important piece of the connection that we needed to make while we were there. It's one of the reasons why we went was for that to happen. And, it, and I wasn't sure if it was going to happen before we left, but it did in a much bigger way than I ever imagined. Even though we can vicariously live through your stories and, and catch the, uh, the emotion you're bringing to us, still there's a disconnect not having actually experienced what you did. And I, hadn't, I honestly hadn't planned to end this series like this, but Pastor, would you offer a prayer that our hearts will be moved and touched that, helps, that expresses your love for the Liberian people and, and your desire for how that should move our people here. Sure. Thank you. Let's, let's just pray together. Gracious God, I just give you thanks for these people in Liberia who desperately need to know of your love and grace. Many of them, God, have already met you. In fact, there are more percentage-wise Liberians there that know you than here in the United States. That ought to cause us to pause and realize, Lord, we're in a mission field right here where we are. But God, those people are struggling every day just to keep body and soul together, and I pray for them. Father, the level of poverty that they experience every day is something I don't have to deal with here. 
And I just ask, God, that you would be gracious to them. But I also pray, Lord, today for those who might be listening to this podcast, that you would put a burden in their hearts for these people, and that some of them, Lord, may even say, I've got to go to Liberia. I've got to see for myself, and I need to make a difference. And so, Lord, I pray that you make them uncomfortable until they become obedient to what you're asking. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'd like to follow up on any of these discussions, go to our website at www.fumcpeoria.org. And uh, there's a contact form there. You can send us a message if you'd like to get in contact with Pastor Tim, with Dan, with Julie or Amy, and uh, follow up with them. If these stories, if you are uh, somebody who's listening to these stories from uh, far away from Peoria, Illinois, and uh, would like some more information, I'm sure they would love to talk with you. Shoot us an email and we'll make sure it gets in their hands and that they follow up with you. Also check out the uh, show notes on our website and be sure and uh, like and share these stories on social media because you are really on the ground level to helping us get these stories out there. Thank you so very much for joining us for episode number four of Stories from the 116. You've been listening to the stories of the 116 from our studio at First United Methodist Church in downtown Peoria, Illinois. You can find the show notes or contact us with your questions and comments through our website at www.fumcpeoria.org.